E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. When I sat down with Alexander N. Block, whom I knew as Sandy Block, I thought that I would have a chance to see him again, but that didn't happen. He didn't tell me that he had cancer, and I was unaware that this recording session would be one of the last times that he would speak publicly about his life. At the time we spoke, Sandy had a job that he'd held for over a decade and a half, overseeing the beverage programs for the legal seafoods restaurants in Massachusetts. The Berkowitz family would go on to sell those same restaurants to a private equity group, and Sandy would pass away all in the span of less than a year. The Sandy Block that I first met in the late 1990s was a patient teacher. An instructor at Boston University's Metropolitan College, he facilitated what felt like graduate seminars about wine and ideas, with a handful of chairs grouped in a circle and every participant encouraged to speak. Sandy, who often sported a nice black turtleneck under a suit, was my instructor in wine courses for several years, alternating between class sessions in the same program led by Alex Murray and Bill Nesto. Thinking about those people, Alex Murray liked to provide a good takeaway, a principal piece of information that could illuminate a wine region. Bill Nesto, whom I've interviewed on this program, is an instructor that likes to challenge students, quizzing them verbally and testing them on their ability to detect aromas and to identify wines. But Sandy was entirely different. Sandy was someone who liked to wonder and to think about ideas. As a student of his, you could propose questions that, in turn, the group would puzzle out the answer to together. At the time, I didn't realize that this was a rare way of speaking about wine. Sandy wasn't salesy, and he didn't position himself as all-knowing or as a taste leader. What he wanted, seemingly, was for the students in his class to propose questions and to make observations. The takeaway for myself was that asking questions about wine is what creates the opening for wisdom to be shared about a complex and sometimes intimidating topic. Here's my interview with Sandy Block, who returned to the city he was born in to record with me. 
So this was kind of a return to the old neighborhood of sorts because you grew up in Brooklyn, right? That's correct, yeah. I grew up in Brighton Beach, lived there until I was 16, went off to college, and uh, never moved back to New York. This was kind of like post-war Brighton Beach. Right. So it was, it was a Jewish neighborhood, almost 100%. And there, were, there was one bar in the neighborhood, and it was one of those places, oh, don't ever go anywhere near there. So there were very few opportunities to uh, drink alcohol. And we weren't really observant, so we didn't even drink during the uh, Passover holidays. There was a closet that we had in our apartment with bottles of whiskey, mostly Canadian whiskey, that were never opened. And my father took a drink every New Year's Eve. And my mother told me a story about how she once had a drink and she immediately passed out. So there was no, nothing good about alcohol in my house. What was growing up like for you? Were your parents into food? or? Uh, not particularly. It was a lower middle class, working class neighborhood. You know, it was urban. It was, it was you know, sports and girls. That's pretty much was the, uh, my obsessions. And I was a little bit into school also, but it was more sports and girls. But your dad was a big, uh, he had a big emphasis on education, right? His attitude was anything can happen. Cataclysms can happen. But whatever you learn, nobody can take away from you. Work hard. And he actually, in a very interesting way, tangential way, had a lot to do with me going into the wine business because I had a French teacher in middle school that was really strict. I didn't see the reason to learn French. We lived in the United States. And she would give us a test every Friday, and we'd have to read out our scores. So it was a way of intimidating and, and, and uh, scaring people into doing well. You had to read out your scores to the rest of the class. To the rest of the class. She'd go around the, the room, uh, Barbara, 90, John, 85, Sandy, you know, whatever I got. And so I was playing football once and uh, got tackled and strained my wrist. I was in a cast. So I felt great that whole week because I didn't have to take the test. And Friday came along and Madame Zal said to me, uh, here's the test. And I said, I can't take it. And I pointed to my wrist and she said, right with your left hand. And I hadn't been paying attention all week. So I got a 15 on the test. She said, see me after class. So I had to get my notes signed by my father, uh, you know, that he had seen this. And he wasn't amused. And uh, he said, I don't care anything that you learn is going to come in handy someday. So fast forward 15 years later, I'm in graduate school, working in a restaurant. All the wines are French, because that's the way it was back in the uh, 70s and 80s. And uh, I made the sommelier with zero background in wine, because I can pronounce the French names. I was the only one on the staff. That was the 70s? It was actually the early 80s. I would say 1981. And that was in Watertown? That was in Watertown. It was at a French restaurant that was actually very good chef-owned uh, called Le Bocage. The owner, a gentleman named Enzo Danesi, a uh, very continental cultured gentleman. I learned a lot from him. But he was adamantly opposed to any wines other than French and a little bit of Italian. And um, he had a great cellar. So I learned... 20 years later, what the 61s were like, the 66s, it was all Bordeaux and Burgundy, basically. It was a great place to learn, but I literally knew nothing when I first started. I, I, I went to the library and got books out, Frank Schoonmaker, Hugh Johnson. Here I was, I was essentially a pot-smoking, bourbon-drinking young kid, and I was wearing a taste of van around my neck, and 
customers would come over and I, you know, I'd have to kind of fake it. And I would look things up on the job. And uh, we're talking about books now before, before the internet. Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, uh, into sports and girls not super motivated in school. And then you go to Vassar, then you get your master's, then you pursue a, a PhD. I don't quite see the, the connection there. How did you go from one to the other? that experience that I mentioned earlier, you know, was the honor thy father thing. I thought I had a tremendous amount of respect for my dad and I didn't want to disappoint him. So, you know, I did well in school. After that, I buckled down in high school. College was actually pretty easy. My high school was very, very competitive and everyone was chasing grades and I got into that in high school. Actually, I started off at Colgate University before I transferred to Vassar. And my first year, um, I didn't think it was that hard, and I got one of the 10 highest GPAs. So then I almost flunked out my sophomore year because I, <laughs> I said, this is too easy. The roller coaster. Right? Yes, yeah, so I was way up and down academically. It really seems like you left Brooklyn and never went back. Growing up in Brooklyn, growing up in Brighton Beach, you were the citizen of a small town. New York was something that was kind of far away. I worked there when I was in high school in the summer. But it was a world away. It was an hour, 20 minutes by subway to Midtown. So I was always a little bit overwhelmed by New York. It was fascinating to me, but, you know, how expensive it was, how crowded it was, how much time it took to get from one place to another, how you had to think about everything as opposed to just sort of be relaxed. So I was, uh, I was more comfortable in a smaller city. And Boston turned out to be just right because it was close to New York. I could see my family. But, you know, you could be in the country in 20 minutes. You were interested in the intellectual side of academics, but it got a little lonely and it got a little frustrating. And you were like, oh, this wine thing is also intellectually interesting and it seems more fun. That's exactly 100% right. I was working on a doctoral dissertation on a fascinating subject, but I think I was too young and restless to really dig in. And I had, I had issues with it for a couple of years, but I just I couldn't finish it. And when I got into the wine, it was like, wow, this incorporates everything. Geology, history, language, culture, gastronomy, you know, biology, chemistry. It was endlessly fascinating. I felt like there would never be a time I'd be bored. And that's essentially been true. Honestly, I haven't looked back. But at the time, it was really difficult for me because, you know, you put a lot of work into something and then to not see it come to fruition because you don't have the discipline, which is the way I looked at it at the time, was, uh, was a challenge. I remember when I first got into wine thinking that it was very cosmopolitan because all of these labels were coming from such faraway places. And I felt like kind of a part of that as a guy who hadn't really traveled much. I don't know how you felt. Uh, my first wine trip, serious wine trip, was on my honeymoon, actually, in 1985. And uh, the first appointment I set up, and again, we're going back to pre-internet, so writing letters and, you know, was at a uh, Chateauneuf-du-Pape property. It was Domaine du Vieux Telegraph, one of my favorites to this day. And I remember driving with my bride to the address, what I thought was the address, and I said, this can't be it. This is a suburban farmhouse. And I knocked on the screen door, and there were two women in peasant garb with a hand corking machine. And 
I don't know, I was thinking Chateau Neuf du Pop, something magnificent and beautiful palace. Right, like this is where the Pope used to live, so it must be really nice here. Yeah. And so I walked in the door and I said, excuse me, in my bad French, I'm looking for Domaine du Telegraph. And they said, oh, I said, EC, you know. So I, that, that was a shocker because I think I had this image that you just described of majesty and they were farmers. Yeah, so that was, that was an amazing revelation to me uh, that the image that I had from 3,000 miles away is not exactly the way it is. Of course, now when I go, it's a completely different thing. I'm looking at it in a much deeper uh, lens onto the viticulture, the vinification, and it's, it's satisfying on a different level. But, you know, it's like your first kiss. It's, there's never anything like the first time you discover it. And that was like a three-week trip, right? That was a three-week trip, yes. My wife is not particularly into wine. This was a, a good test because I guess she's particularly into me. <laughs> Or was. No, she is. And um, there was one nice restaurant in Chateauneuf du Pop. And I looked at the list, and everything on the list was Chateauneuf du Pop. And not only was everything on the list Chateauneuf du Pop, it was, it was priced according to vintage. So the Chateau's wine, as well as Belcastel, View Telegraph, all the other greats, they were all the same price in the 78 vintage. And then in the 76 vintage, they were all the same price. And that was, that was a revelation to me because being in the trade in a place like Boston, you have an opportunity to uh, use things from all over the world. And by that point, I actually had added California wines and, and had uh, other wines from other regions on the list. But it just made sense. It was like, oh, yeah, we're in the Rhone Valley. You're going to drink Rhone wines. You know, but I was thinking that you'd see Bordeaux, Burgundy everywhere. In this country, the Rhone was just starting to take off, right, in the 80s? Yeah, and I think that was one of the real contributions among the many of Parker. Uh, he, he shone a spotlight on it and was very enthusiastic. That sort of opened my eyes to it. So back to Watertown. Yeah. How was it going engaging with guests? I enjoyed it. It evolved from the time I started to the time I moved on to a larger restaurant about five years later. At the beginning, to be honest with you, we were serving very classical French cuisine, Tornados Rossini and Lobster Thermidor. And, and I'd go up to a table and I'd say, uh, what were we thinking about for wine? And three out of the four people would look at me like I was crazy. And they'd say, I'll have another Amaretto Sour, please. Uh, I'll have a Presbyterian. Uh, <laughs> can I have a gin and tonic? And there might be one wacko that would say, uh, yeah, maybe I'll have a glass of wine. What do you recommend? So that was at the beginning. By the end of the time I was there, wine had become more acceptable and more... I mean, this was a restaurant that people specifically sought out because of the cuisine and the, and the ambiance. So most people were drinking wine. So that, that was a shift, cultural shift. You know, I think the last figures I saw were that in 1980, 4% of the alcohol consumed in the United States was wine, and that just shot up. So, I mean, it, it hasn't shot up that much, but it started to really, really escalate. So that was an exciting time. I mean, there are trends sometimes that you can see that are taking off. And that was just a lucky period for me to have gotten into wine because it started to take off in general. Yeah, people would look at me, my parents included, uh, like, you're doing what? I mean, it was just odd. And it was coming out of the Reagan era where alcohol was, you know, just say no, it was lumped in with... Uh, with hard drugs by some people. So it was definitely out of the mainstream, but 
as we were talking about before, I just fell in love with it and decided this is, you know, this has a long tradition. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And it seems like it's, seems like it's growing. I learned a lot from the purveyors that, uh, that I worked with. There was a gentleman, I don't know if you knew him when you were in Boston, named Randy Sheehan. He was, uh, went on to work for Martinetti, and he was one of the editors of the Quarterly Review of Wines. But he was a wealth of knowledge. I learned a lot from him. He, was, he had an academic background. One of the things that I did take from my dad was you can learn something from everyone. So I tried to, I was on that path where I was so hungry for knowledge. I was, I, hopefully I wasn't too obnoxious, but I was always at, they were trying to sell me stuff and I was trying to get information. <laughs> Being a buyer in the Boston market for a while, one of the things I really liked was that there were these people that were quasi-academic and uh, also really into wine yeah. and liked to, they liked to drink some wine, but they also liked to appreciate some of the finer parts about it intellectually. And also a lot of those people found a niche for themselves that lasted for decades. And both of those things are a little bit difficult in New York. It was very common for a sommelier in Boston to be there for like a long time. It's very common in New York for someone to be there for like two years. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I think that that's also a change in the culture all over. But, uh, Boston gets a bad rap for being a little bit clannish. Like, you know, if you're not from there, hard to break in. I found it very easy. I found the people very welcoming and, and a really good group of wholesales, which later I joined myself. I don't know what I added to the picture, but uh, there were a lot of good companies out there that you could learn from. Before you did that, you moved to a bigger restaurant. Yes. And what was that bigger restaurant experience like? Uh, it was good. It was it was taking something that I had learned and applying it on a larger stage and having more impact. I mean, this was a restaurant that seated about 280. It was called the Mill Falls. It was an interesting process because um, Wine by the Glass was just coming into prominence. Before that, it was almost all by the bottle, or you'd have a house wine you served by the carafe. So at this point, we're like in the mid-80s? Yeah, this was 86. And it was an exciting thing for me to apply the knowledge I had slowly gained over five years to a larger stage, motivate a whole staff. At any one point, there were 18 to 20 waiters on. I say waiters, there were a couple of waitresses, but it was a pretty male-dominated field. And try to juggle so much happening at once. I tried to get to every table on Saturday nights. It was a little difficult. But, you know, so I always had like four or five or six things backed up, like get to table 32, talk to them about their appetizers, you know, serve this on table 45. It was a, a real education in how to juggle a lot of things at the same time. So I did pretty much everything from order the wine to change the wine list mechanically, you know, on a, on a dot matrix printer, <laughs> to receive the wine, unpack the wine, put it in its bin. It was a very exhausting job, but it was also fruitful. And that was a place where I discovered that I wanted to uh, pursue the Master of Wine program. You know, after a couple of years, I kind of had it down. I had it under control. So I was playing tennis every day. and my wife and I had just had our first child, and I was like, I, I, I got to do something serious. And a good friend of mine who you know, Bill Nesto, uh, we were talking, and he said, you know, the Institute of Masters of Wine has internationalized. And I said, I did hear about that. He said, do you want to pursue this? 
And I said, uh, yeah, it seems like the kind of thing you can't do on your own, but maybe with, with a group. So we put a group together. Um, we would write letters to London, get a letter back with a packet of old tests and guidelines like two weeks later, three weeks later. So that became a place where I would spend my daytime hours. We weren't open at lunchtime. Working on blind tasting, working on my wine knowledge, all those books that I was like, I'll read it next year. Suddenly I had a group of three other people and we reported to each other. We, we took it like this law school model. Like it's too big to bite off. So you study the Mosul, I'll do the Rheingau, you do the Rheinhessen, and you do the Faults. And then we'd, we'd taste and we'd report and we'd write up notes for each other. So that was, uh, that was very beneficial, a good couple of years of learning that way. But kind of felt like you guys were off on your own in the colonies while the British people like had this <laughs> structured test and you guys were just kind of figuring it out. Yes, and that was actually very valuable because most of what we did the first year was not related to the exam at all, but it was still a groundwork of knowledge that was really, really important to have. We learned about the classic regions and, and what their wines tasted like, and we took structured notes. And then we got into the single blind and then double blind tastings, which were... But we did it at our own pace. I mean, there were no Americans who had passed this exam. So I had no expectation that I would pass, but I just knew that disciplined course of study was something that I had kind of failed at doing, or I viewed myself failed at doing when I was in working on my doctorate. So this was kind of like an opportunity for redemption. I guess at that time, there actually would have been more books published, right? I mean, this is kind yes. of when Jancis and Oz Clark are coming onto the scene. Exactly. They're writing more books about wine, which, you right. know, previously was kind of the Schoonmacher, Alexis Lachine, That's Hugh it. Johnson trio. That was it. <laughs> and then by the time you get to the mid-80s, there's kind of, a, you know, not a lot of books, but there's more. Yeah, there were monographs on particular regions. You know, there were, there were books on Chablis, or there were books on, on the Rhone, John Livingston Learmonth, Rosemary George. You know, there were books on Alsace. So, yeah, it, was, it satisfied that hunger, and it came along just in time for us to learn about him. What was it like? Because you did eventually pass, and you yes. got the Master of Wine. So that was a multi-year process for you, so I assume it was a lot of different experiences. But what were some of the standout moments? I, I took it twice. So there are two parts, and then there's a dissertation. The two parts are the practical, which is the blind tasting, 36 wines over three days, and then the theoretical, which is 13 essays over four days on viticulture, vinification, commercial aspects of wine, etc. So there have been some people that have passed the whole thing one year, but uh, I think a handful, maybe a dozen over the years. So I kind of looked at it as a two-year project, and so I passed the theoretical first. Again, things came full circle. I found that the essay writing that I learned to do in graduate school was really helpful. You can be a genius, but if you can't write an essay, you can't pass that exam. And then I passed the uh, practical the following year. To be honest with you, it was a little bit like an athletic performance. You had to be in good shape. You had to be focused. Uh, most of us had been out of school for a long time. I had been out of school for 13 years. And you had to write an essay under time pressure. I had no illusions about it. I, I have no illusions about it today. There, mastering wine is, not, is a misnomer. You learn how to pass a test. And the test is hard. 
But that's all it means, that you've learned how to pass that test. So I figured out how to pass the first part, and then I figured out how to pass the second part. But the reason I say it's like an athletic contest is I was tasting very, very poorly up until about a week before the exam. I was just blowing everything. And then I just got in the zone. And when I was in that room, I was also under a threat from my wife. By this point, we had two little kids, and she didn't want to see me like away every weekend, uh, spending all my time <laughs> blind tasting. So she said, please pass this year. And so I was really motivated. And uh, all I can say is that the wine spoke to me. You know, I looked at the glass, I smelled the wine, and I said, ah, that's a Blanc de Blanc Champagne. That's a Blanc de Noir from California. You know, I just had this in insight into the wines. And I don't know, if I'd taken the exam a couple of weeks earlier, I, I probably wouldn't have. I want to bring in here the perspective of Master of Wine, David Wrigley. David began working for the Wine and Spirit Education Trust in 1990 and passed the Master of Wine exam in 1994. He retired from the WSET, having worked in international development and teacher training in 2020. The milestone dates of David's career almost exactly match up with Sandy Block's own progression over the same period of time, and it is worth hearing what they have to say about the same topics. Good exam technique counts for far more than you might think, in my view, rightly or wrongly, in an exam like that. Uh, you have a certain amount of time to get a certain amount of answers done. If you don't play the percentage game and have the discipline to make sure you answer all the questions that you're asked to do, um, even if you don't answer them all perfectly, you're probably going to get more marks out of the final result than you would if you answered one question really, really, really well and then dashed off another two or three more. So when I passed the MW, I was in the very lucky position of my chief executive at WSET saying to me at the time, I don't care what you do, just pass. So I took two weeks off and I spent the two weeks practicing writing essays to the timetable that I was going to meet in the exam to make sure that I could get the right number of essays done in the time. It's nothing to do with wine knowledge. Uh, and so it's, it's things like that that I think uh, if people can, and I know so many people who have who ought to be members of the Institute who are, are not because they haven't somehow been able to uh, you know, finish the tasting papers in time or um, all that sort of thing. And it's ex exam technique, really. And really what you need to do is to have the ability to take a step back and to see the overview and to compare how things happen in one part of the world as opposed to another. And if you can do that and bring some good examples to bear, then you're a long way towards um, being competent to pass the MW theory exam. Um, I think more people are capable of passing the MW than think they are. I think some people see it too big very often um, as an insurmountable thing uh, and it puts them off. 
it is it is a challenge and it wouldn't be worth having if it weren't but i think it is a challenge that more people are capable of rising to than think they are and i can see maybe if people do build it up in their mind maybe they get overly nervous and then have trouble I finishing i think that's part of it yeah. like getting yeah. nerves yeah yeah i think you get into this awful state of mind where um you really really feel that you've got to be putting out everything you possibly can on a particular topic because this is master of wine this is the big one uh, i've got to show the examiner the full depth of knowledge and all of that takes time and if it takes too much time then you're sunk unfortunately I can imagine mentorship is a big part of it, really. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, it's it's uh, one of them once went through a tasting note I wrote and with a red pen took out all the quites, slightlies, uh, a little, all those sort of hedgy, fudgy words that I'd written. And he said, now read it. And it was much more definitive, much, much better answer. Do you see people grow as people while they take Absolutely. this thing? Yes. Yeah. It's one of the most rewarding things of the whole process. What are some of the markers of that? What are some of the things that tend to develop over taking the test? I think the first thing is confidence. You just see somebody in front of a glass of wine who can articulate what it is about it that they, they see with conviction. Um, and they're, they're very happy to do it. They're very happy to talk to people about it. Um, and it's, it's that sense of confidence that a combination of study and practice can bring that I think is really the most rewarding thing. We'll be back with more from Sandy Block right after this message. Sustainability has never been more important, and DM is at the forefront of environmental responsibility. Having set a new standard in the world of closures, DM not only excels in the quality of its technological cork closures, but also demonstrates an incredible commitment to caring for the environment. DM has taken steps to significantly reduce its carbon footprint, embracing green electricity and renewable energy in its factories. By 2025, they aim to reduce their direct emissions from energy and processing by 55%. Their sustainable closure solution, Origine by DM, combines natural cork with a binding agent composed of 100% bio-based materials and a beeswax emulsion, a successful testament to DM's commitment to eco-friendly practices. DM has pioneered a responsible and long-term vision for cork forests, playing a crucial role in sequestering hundreds of thousands of tons of CO2 each year. Planting thousands of new cork trees, DM actively contributes to sustaining our planet's natural resources, and that is something we all benefit from every day. DM doesn't just offer technically advanced cork closures, they also lead in environmental responsibility. Learn more about DM's commitment at dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T. That's D-I-A-M dash closures with an S dot com forward slash i d t t for more information you were one of the first people in the eastern part of the united states to pass right 
Well, yeah, I was the first one on the East Coast. Yeah. The other three, the years before me, were all Californians. And did you find it a culture shift, taking a, a test that at the time was largely administered and proctored by British people? Yes, I found it a challenge because at the seminars, there, there was this sort of British old boy network, even though a bunch of the uh, people that were giving the uh, seminars were women, but there was this kind of stiff upper lip. Um, I remember I asked a question about Sangiovese versus Pinot Noir to one of the uh, British MWs that had come over to educate us. And he said, come on, old boy, uh, can't you work that out? And, you know, you f I felt really like, wow, I'm really stupid. But, well, the, the hard part was one of the groups of wines that I tasted on the exam were Bulgarian. And that those are big wines in the UK, or they were at the time, and there were no, I'd never tasted a Bulgarian wine. So I didn't identify the wine, but I said enough good things about it to, uh, I tasted it accurately. I just didn't deduce what it was. I remember that because I, with you, I studied for the WSET and I remember the Eastern European Cabernet, you know, the Romanian Cabernet section because it's such a big supermarket item over there. And then I would go back to my restaurant and sell a lot of Camus Cabernet. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just a, there was a disconnect. Right, you know? right. So after the period that you were in the course, we actually changed the course. We departed from the WSET and we made it more U.S.-centric because, you know, we didn't really see the point. If you wanted to get the WSET, there are other good teachers, but we didn't really see the point of preparing people for a lot of wines that they weren't going to be uh, familiar with. I didn't know that they changed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Starting in the, I would say, about 2003, 2004. I think you were in the course in the late 90s, right? Yeah. Yeah. That period, late 90s, California was coming on so strong. And, and there was very little about California. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, if you look at the original Hugh Johnson Atlas of Wine, the first edition, which I actually have, there's one page on the New World. <laughs> well, I remember he, at one point, and I like Hugh, he's been on the show, and obviously he's great. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember at one point he was like, you know, if the California Chardonnay is too heavy, you can just add a little pear, yeah. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? <laughs> it was just a different taste for than the... Yeah. You know, speaking of Hugh, actually, he's a good writer. And one of the things that I came to learn about you, because you were my instructor, is that you really appreciated good writers. Like, you were the guy who turned me on to Gerald Asher. Oh, I was just thinking of Gerald Asher. That, to me, he's the... I, mean, I love Hugh Johnson's writing and Jancis Robinson. But in terms of essays, I thought Gerald Asher was really the best. I think a lot of times people get into wine and they want to collect the wine knowledge. Yes, but what I appreciated about you early on, at least early on for me, was that you were looking at how well someone had crafted the message, you know, the written part, like how well they had done it, which makes sense later because you became a fiction author. Maybe you were at that time, but you were looking at the actually like, how well is this done? You know, yeah, I think yeah, a lot of yeah. people don't look at it that oh, way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, to me, it's all about communication and Wine is part of a larger context, and I think the more we set it into that context, the more um, meaningful it is. You know, it can be fetishized, and I'm guilty of it. I think a lot of people are guilty of it. It's a wonderful thing, and it's added immensely to my life, and it's been my career. But I think you can make too much of it, in a sense. I, and I've seen this over the years. A lot of people kind of come into it and they're like, I want to drink the best. And you have no context for what the best is because you don't know what 
what's out there. You don't know why it would be the best other than the fact that it's expensive. So that's the other aspect of I always tried to incorporate in my career and in my teaching where possible uh, the blind tasting component because it does level the field and it kind of it, it puts you back focused on what's in the glass as opposed to what's on the label. Over periods of time, have you seen different kinds of students or have they largely seemed to follow the same sorts of trends? There's always a lot of career changers, people that, you know, they're 30, much like I was. And they decide, you know what, I don't really want to be an accountant anymore, or I'm bored with law, or I don't like marketing, or I, you know, and they're fascinated with wine. So that's always a component. Then there are people who are in the, in the trade who want a little bit more rigorous education or, or whose managers or the owners of the store or the restaurant have sent them there. And then there are some wholesale distributor reps that want to go beyond just calling on accounts and they want to broaden their knowledge. I think that that has remained relatively constant over the years. There's, there's always that mix. And it's, it's good. I like having consumers mixed in with people who are more career. Are there things that you've noticed about students in the wine field where you're like, oh, this is a very classic thing to have happen? In general, what I have noticed is that everyone's very reticent to speak at the beginning of the class, but after the first class that I do, anyway, they, they're really loose. They really open up, and they, uh, they're more apt to express their opinion. I try to encourage them right from the beginning that if you're smelling it, it's real. Don't think that you don't know what you're doing. You may be the only one in the class that gets it, but other people will learn from what you're picking out. So I try to be very inclusive and encouraging that way. And I think they do respond to it because usually by the end of the class, they're much more garrulous. What was it like when you were coming up with curriculum for teaching people? Because this is started out as basically like your friends in a tasting group. Correct. You know, Bill was a sommelier, right. you were a sommelier, you guys got together. Yep. How do you then take that to saying, okay, we're at a study center at Boston University, we're charging people money, you know, this course might be two years long. How do you translate that? It's just me and my friends to a curriculum. Well, it was an interesting process. Bill has a different take on things than I do. And we, we thought there would be a value in team teaching it. He was pushing for certain information to appear in the curriculum, and I was pushing for other information. And somehow we worked it out. As I said, we're good friends. I think we respect each other's differences. I wanted to put it into a context that was broader and talk more about commercial issues and talk more about the positioning of the wines in the market. And I think Bill was always pushing more for the technical information and that everyone needed to have a great grounding in issues that, to me, were maybe a little esoteric for that level. But anyway, we worked it out, and, and I think we arrived at uh, somewhere in the middle that was a good medium. And one of the early collaborators there was also Alex Murray. Alex right? Murray, yeah. What I liked about him is he could synthesize a lot of information really well, actually. He was the guy who said to me, you know, if you're going to study Sherry, you have to realize that the prevailing winds are important. And, you know, you could uh, read a lot about Sherry, <laughs> drink a lot of Sherry, and no one would mention to you the wind factor. You know, he just had this way of laser focusing in on this important aspect. Yeah, absolutely. Alex is super insightful, conscientious, uh, knowledgeable. So, yeah, it was, it was the three of us. And, and I would say Alex stood somewhere in the middle. Maybe it was his influence that got us to 
give and take a little bit. So if I were to sum up you three three amigos, <laughs> here's my take from that period in the 90s when the luxury aspect of wine was really taking hold. Like I was working at a restaurant that was very expensive and serving wine. In retrospect, the wine's prices we were serving are, would be very cheap now. But at the time, they were considered expensive. And it was moving in that field of like wine should be about going to a place with foie gras, caviar, and expensive wine. The interesting thing about you three guys is you are never about that. Like, you were always value guys. Bill liked a good Chianti, and, you know, you were into your Portuguese wine. And the other thing about the three of you is that you were always appreciators of classics. I think once you have an understanding, deep understanding of what the classics are, you appreciate their singularity, and you really understand in your palate and in your mind that they can only be made in certain places and that those places are what their identity is. I think there was a resistance to some of the trends that were starting to happen that we all felt at the time, over-oaking, high alcohol, homogenization. It wasn't an anti-California thing by any means, but I think it was maybe an anti-trophy wine thing. I think that we all felt that the more you knew about this, the more you realized you didn't have to spend $100 on a bottle, and, and you could find things that were really more suited to the food that were very reasonably priced. I guess it took me a while to get there, you know, on that. At the time, I was like, why are we tasting Negromaro in class when all of these people are spending a lot of money on Peter Michael in my restaurant? You know what I mean? Yes, I do. And I, I had the big light bulb go off when um, I was doing a staff training at Biba. Do you remember Biba? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the, it was the spot. And I saw the, uh, the sommelier there, a bunch of wines. And he said, come on in and do a training. And he wasn't there. So I did a training for the wait staff that was about 15 or 18 people on four or five wines that I brought in. And it went over like a lead balloon. Like you read about comedians bombing. I mean, there was absolutely zero reaction. And I tried to engage people, and they just weren't into it at all. At the end, there was one of the waiters that I knew. I was like, what's, what's going on today? He said, well, let me explain something to you. It was like I was an idiot, which I was. Uh, he said, um, we work for tips. These are all really great values, but there's no way we want to turn people away from like a $75 wine to this $35 wine. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> One of the things that actually you've done in terms of curriculum is you eventually developed a history of wine course that really looks at the history of wine in a global context for you know, many centuries. And what was it like developing that? I always learn something when I teach that course uh, from the students. We're reading a book a week. It's a very heavy course load, but it's, it's fascinating because it does take wine out of the context of this special product because for most of wine's history, it's really only the last three, 400 years that it's been a connoisseur's beverage. It's primarily been food. And it's always part of the culture and it's always had a positive image as being more healthful to drink than water, which was all, almost always polluted. It's been currency. It's been, um, you know, it's, it's been a very meaningful product in people's lives over many, many different cultures. I always find that the students are, their minds are blown by, you know, how recent this whole phenomenon is of fine wine and, and wine as a, uh, 
connoisseur's product. And I always learn a lot from, you know, their comments. What are things that really stood out for you that would be less obvious things that people may not already know? Yeah, great question. One of the things about wine has been that it's been used as a political and economic football by various administrations, governments, monarchs over the years, taxation. It it was a necessity of life, so, you know, it wasn't something that was um, a choice for most people. That's what they drank. So taxing it had major implications. One of the things that people are always surprised by is uh, how during the French Revolution, one of the major grievances, and it's right there in Charles Dickens, but you know we don't think about it, was all these taxes moving wine from the vineyard area to Paris. Each gate that you had to pass through, you had to pay an extra fee. So that that's one thing that to me is fascinating about it. There's also how it transmits cultures across time and how the, uh, the pharaohs were buried with casks of wine so that they could take it to the afterlife. The Romans used it as a method of conquest. When they moved north into Provence, Gaul at the time, they used it to enslave the local tribes who didn't have the technology. You need, you need agricultural setup to make wine, really. And so they used it as their divide and conquer kind of thing. They would get local chieftains drunk, and then they would, uh, they would buy slaves from them, and then they would enslave them. More recently, uh, one of the fascinating books to me in the course is Wine and War, which is uh, a monograph studying what went on in various regions of France during the Second World War, during the German occupation, and how the Germans used their control over French wine at the time to crush the spirit of the people who, to whom wine was so much a part of their identity and their national pride. And all the good wines were taken out and, you know, they were left with plonk. Fascinating to me also is uh, the more modern period. And we always, we always read biographies of uh, Robert Mondavi. He was such a seminal figure. He really, without him, I don't think we'd be where we are today. But he had a, you know, I, I teach it at somewhat as a Greek tragedy, somebody with the best of intentions, with the noblest of intentions, ending up you know, in a, in a different place than where they thought they wanted to be. So, yeah, we do a lot of reading. Part of the course that is most confusing to people, I think, is that ancient period where wine is considered a magical product, particularly going back to the Hebrew Torah, to the Bible. It was a symbol of all good things. It was, it was God's gift you know, at a time when we had a really subsistence diet in the Roman Empire a little bit later, it was one of the mainstays of, uh, of nutrition. So you'd have grain, oil, and wine. And that's basically what most people ate. So it just, it, it, it takes it into a different context than what we normally think about as wine. And then I also find fascinating the various competitors to wine over, over, over the years. Uh, we're still not a wine drinking culture. I mean, we know that it's a, it's about 17% of what we drink today. But, you know, over the years in England, the gin craze, you know, gin supplanted wine because they needed something stronger. And it was, and it was to soak up excess grain that was, uh, you know, causing crop surpluses and, and starvation, actually, paradoxically enough. 
So people stopped drinking wine because they were they were always bombed on gin. So yeah, it's just got so many different facets to it. Every so often I see a new discovery. Like we've discovered this uh, chipped earthenware uh, amphora and now we think this is the oldest. Because of these new discoveries, the books are out of date sometimes. It's never clear to me exactly where. Was it the Babylonians? Was it the Armenians? Was it the Egyptians? Was it the Minoans? You know, who made wine first? It's not really clear, but what we do know is that it spread really quickly. I think the best information I've seen is that wine is about 8,000 years old, and we have evidence of this uh, this wine cellar in northwestern Iran, Turkey, that part of the world, that had shards of of earthenware that definitely have grape residue on it that's about 8,000 years old, and beer about 9,000. And I guess the American reset of prohibition is is in many ways kind of unique in terms of modern countries. I'm sure there's some historical parallel, but in terms of it being outlawed and then, you know, all these wineries go out of business and then it, the culture just resets later when they say, okay, now you can make it again. It's fascinating because where the wineries went out of business, I think there were seven that had uh, had the license to make sacramental wine, so they continued. But where the wineries went out of business, the grape business was thriving because there was a provision in the uh, amendment that allowed 250 gallons of home winemaking. So they, they had to pass that to get enough votes, uh, and it was mainly about the cider industry. But what that meant was that people were uh, shipping boxcar loads of, of grapes and essentially hardy red grapes east to the Midwest, to Chicago, and to New York and Boston, and people were making wine there and, of course, selling it, but they weren't supposed to be selling it. So one of the reasons why there's so much old vine Zinfandel and Carignan is because those were the grapes that would survive the, uh, the, the trip in a boxcar, unrefrigerated boxcar east. But uh, there was well-documented. We drank a lot more during Prohibition than we did beforehand. It, 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 it was suddenly racy and and illegal, so it was cool. Most of it was, was imported whiskey and, uh, and, and gin, but the grape industry was thriving. They were, they were all set up. Do you think that that's had cultural ramifications up to today in terms of how people approach wine, that prohibition era? I think that there's always been an effort on the part of the wine industry to separate themselves from beer and spirits. We're the healthy drink. So there's always been an effort to elevate wine to a uh, you know a higher level but i mean in the end of the day it's it's alcohol too i think often you look at wine almost through that financial lens of like what's the tax structure how does it move what does that cost you know that kind of like on the business side of it and i remember that some of the master wine questions were geared that way some of the wset questions were like if you were a sherry producer and you were going to blend to this what would you do explain your reasoning to make a viable business doing this kind of thing and so i guess that probably would have appealed to you to write those kind of answers and then to think if you're thinking about it that way yeah you know it's funny it's 27 years ago now and i remember those questions vividly one of them specifically that I had was, you are an advisor to the sherry industry. Write a paper on how to get the industry going again. They've been writing that paper for a long time. <laughs> and that was a really interesting challenge. That was a mandatory question. I had to take that question. So I had to think quickly because I didn't know a heck of a lot about sherry at the time. 
But uh, yeah, the, the exam itself was an extraordinary experience. As I said, I was just totally zoned in. And I remember the next year I, went, I came back to proctor the exam. It was at the windows of the world, you know, the, the top floor of late lamented World Trade Center. This guy came up to me, very unmistakable look, handlebar mustache. He said, hey, Sandy, how are you doing? And I said, sorry, have we met before? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, I sat next to you for four days last year. And I said, I'm really sorry. I just wasn't. He said, we had all these long conversations. And I, I, I really felt terrible. But I just, he didn't look familiar to me because I was just like so focused. It almost sounds like kind of an out-of-body experience for you. It almost was, yeah, yeah. You think that was a uh, relation to stress or like runner's high or? Yeah, I think it was more like runner's high. I think I was just like super, super motivated. I didn't want anything distracting me. And I just tried to channel the information that I had and the skills that I, that I had. And, uh, and, you know, as I said, there is an athletic aspect to it. You have to really be on point for two hours writing, writing these, first of all, r diagramming the question, writing the notes introduction, uh, conclusion, evidence in the middle. Can't be dogmatic. You have to remember all these things. So that's what I did. So how do you think that passing a test and getting the credential affected the rest of your career? Because this is 92. Well, it, it's a nice club to be part of, <laughs> um, just in the sense that, you know, when you meet other MWs, you know that they've been through some similar experience. Uh, it didn't have any impact initially. And in fact, what I would suggest to people that are interested in pursuing it, pursue it because it's hard and because it's a challenge and because it's interesting and you'll learn a lot, not for the reward. By this point, I was in the wholesale business. I was, uh, I was a manager at a distributorship, 1992. And uh, I'm walking down the halls in the company that I worked at and the owner of the company came up and he saw my picture in the wine spectator somebody showed it to him and he shook me shook my hand and he says I have no idea what this means but I know it's good it's, it's going to be good for our company <laughs> yeah it had a, it had a it actually had an interesting circular kind of impact inside the company it had somewhat of a it, it shook people up and uh, outside the company it, it caused people you know who I knew to look at me differently and um, I would say it was a gradual thing. I did not tell anyone I was studying for this. I, I didn't want that added pressure. This is something, as I said, I, I didn't think I was going to pass it. So I didn't want that, oh, how are you doing? You know. So I just did it with the three people I worked with. And so it was a shocker to a lot of people when, when it came out. But eventually, you know, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but there was a lot of recognition from outside of Boston. And inside Boston came a little bit more slowly. And, you know, eventually with my company, with customers, with suppliers, uh, we were rebuilding a portfolio, which is difficult to do in a franchise state. And I worked with, uh, with another gentleman that was kind of my partner in that project. And uh, it became easier, far easier to sign on interesting suppliers that we, whose wines we really liked. Because again, the shorthand, it was like, oh, he's an MW, he'll know how to sell this. And you know, it's been, it's been great for my career. It's been really great for my career. But I guess what I'm saying is that it wasn't like an instant jolt. It was, it was a slow, gradual accretion of, of positive effects. 
I think maybe most most MWs probably have that attitude that I express that it's it's we passed an exam. You know, it's it's a great it's a, it was a hard exam, but uh, you know, it doesn't make us geniuses. Coming up after the break, some real surprises emerge. These were wine regions that prior to their taking off would have been very hard to foresee because they would be as weird as if today somebody said, you know, hey, Lithuania is really the place, you know, or I mean, it's just off everybody's radar screen. That and more after this message. One of the first things I learned doing harvest in California is where to buy wine. And that is Bottle Barn. Classic wines, natural wines, cult wines, up-and-coming producers, excellent vintages, hard-to-source bottles, and daily drinkers. Bottle Barn has them all, and Bottle Barn has them all for great prices. Honestly, I, I really don't know how they do it. I've seen pricing from Bottle Barn for some fancy wines that is several hundred dollars less than I would have expected, and I've also seen wines for under 30 bucks that I would have expected to have been significantly more than that. Plus, when I get my wine, it's in perfect condition. That's why I do what all the best winemakers in California do. I shop at Bottle Barn. Try for yourself. Use the promo code VINO15 for 15% off your first order at BottleBarn.com. That's V-I-N-O-1-5 for 15% off your first order at BottleBarn.com. I think you've seen a number of trends and micro trends happen over time. How would you explain that curve? What was important over, say, the last 40 years of wine? I think wine became hot and trendy, and, and, it, and it trended up for really for a long while. I don't see it as continuing that growth curve, honestly. I don't think we're going to become France. And France, of course, is changing too, and so is Italy. What I see among the uh, among the twenty somethings that work for me and that are some of my customers, versatility. They're not. They don't have allegiance to any particular category. You know, they might start off with a beer, and then they might go into wine. They might they might have a cocktail on Tuesday night, and maybe have a wine on Wednesday night. But there isn't. I don't think the same level of fascination with it that there was with uh, people maybe in their 30s, 40s, 50s. I think that there's a little bit of a backlash against wine among among some younger consumers. It's like, this is too complicated. This is too hard. I don't know whether we as a trade have have done enough to reach out. I know that sometimes when I go into a restaurant or a wine bar and I see 15 wines by the glass and I have no clue what the varietals for 12 of them are, I'm wondering how anyone who's not a specialist handles it. So not to say that everything should be plain vanilla, but um, I think that you have to work kind of hard to uh, figure out what wine you want in some of the, some of the restaurants that are hot today. And I think um, there's a cost factor. I think we charge too much for wines in general. You know, and I mean, this has been an age-long, age-old restaurant. I'm sure back to your sommelier days, there's always pressure to like, let's get another few percentage points out of the wine program. So, you know, I think it's a little bit short-sighted. There are opportunities to find value and pass it on to the consumer. And, you know, again, as we said earlier, maybe the wait, wait staff doesn't like that, but they probably like a busier restaurant. And, uh... 
you know, I think that there's definitely a suspicion on the part of the public, well-founded, that the restaurants charge too much for their wines. You also worked in distribution and import yes. for a long time. I did. You saw some some rises in certain categories and, and some categories that kind of failed to ignite. And what was your experience? You know, all you had to do is stay one ch- one chapter ahead, and you could you could add value. Uh, I remember literally going into restaurants in the early '90s and saying, "Hey, I got a way that you could actually make some more, increase your wine sales. What's that? How about if we did a Chardonnay by the glass? You think so?" And you know, they try it, and then it just takes off and it's like, wow, this guy really knows his stuff. (laughs) Whereas it it just, it wasn't rocket science. One of the major trends I saw was the development of Chile and Argentina a little bit later. Um, But Chile in the early mid-90s, Australia in the mid-90s, and then Argentina after late 90s. And these were wine regions that prior to their taking off, would have been very hard to foresee because they would be as weird as if today somebody said, you know, hey, Lithuania is really the place, you know, or I mean, it's just off everybody's radar screen. Maybe a little bit less so with Chile because Lafitte had bought Los Vascos in 1988. But those were eye-openers, how quickly they happened and, and how dramatically they affected things. And I think also the rise of, uh, the rise of Chardonnay and Cabernet, you know, to the point where they became pretty much now that's all you see in Napa, right? In terms of winemaking, I feel like there's been some some shift. What was that Parker era roller coaster like for you? People liked extraction. Customers liked richness. Texture was texture, you know, one of the great things about Parker and Pinot were that they talked about sensuality. R- literally, when I first got into wine, and I didn't know what I was doing, but salesmen would come and they'd taste me on wines and they'd be like, this is going to be great in four years. I was like, well, i got to serve it tomorrow. But, you know, it was all about structure and angularity and reputation. It was like, if you didn't like it, I mean, this is Chateau Bechevel. You, you know, there's something wrong with you, obviously. So I think Pinot first and then Parker dialed it back to texture and what's happening on your palate. And I think it was a, it was a very, very welcoming thing. The other, the other aspect from when I first got into the restaurant business was the varietal thing, you know. So suddenly I was, or at least my original incarnation was obsolete because I didn't have to translate what Sancerre and, uh, and Cote Roti were anymore because suddenly... We had a seven or eight varietals that most people memorize. They could walk in a little bit more jaunty because they, they I'll have a Sauvignon Blanc. They, or they might pronounce, mispronounce it at the time, but they had a sense as to what they were ordering as opposed to, I'm helpless, you know, figure this out for me. You're the guy with the ashtray around your head, you know. And so I think the varietal boom, the growth of the new world, Southern Hemisphere wine regions, the flying winemakers... I mean, Australia was just, that caught everyone by, a little bit by surprise. You know, they, they went from uh, zero to 60 really, really, really quickly. And uh, easier to pronounce for most Americans than Latin America. Uh, same varieties, same names. You could confuse them with California wines. And they were, they were, they were brilliant marketers at the time. So I think that, that 
the textural changes, the ripeness changes, these were all things that were good. And then like all good things, there's a swing to extreme. And uh, we're looking for something that's smooth and rich and tastes good. But now we have something that's like super over-oaked and over-extracted and maybe tastes good when you're tasting 50 wines, but isn't going to really work well with my filet mignon. You know, I, I think it's a constant pendulum. Do you find that Boston has particular tastes that maybe are unique to Boston or that the certain tendencies that are more pronounced in Boston? By reputation, uh, more classically oriented, more European oriented. I think everything's becoming very homogenized nationally now. I think that Rosé maybe may have hit Boston a year or two after it hit New York, but, you know, it's in full flower. Have there been trends that either surprised you or that you just really didn't like over the years? Well, I think Yellowtail and its associated phenomena caught everyone by surprise. Um, you know, the, the, the race downward in terms of lack of uh, specificity. And I, I'm not a basher of Yellowtail, really. They did something right to sell that many cases compared to others that would, you know, would love to have done that. But yeah, that was surprising to me how people were enamored of cutesy labels and basically innocuous wine and, and, and were so happy to display it, you know. And uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was a big surprise to me. And I think it brought, ultimately ended up bringing the whole Australian wine industry down with it. You know, commoditize things. That was the flip side of the coin of it's all Shiraz and it's recognizable, right? Because yeah. then if it's all Shiraz and then there's one that's $5, well, why not get that one? <laughs> right. Well, I'll tell you what surprises me is how incontrovertibly delicious Syrah is everywhere, whether you're talking about the classics or New World. I mean, it just it's, it's an amazing wine. And yet how impossible it still is to sell and how undervalued it is. It's interesting because, you know, when I did the Bill Nesto interview, I interviewed Bill and yep. obviously he, along with you, were previous instructors of mine. I realized that there were certain things that he was saying that I had heard as a student and kind of internalized mm. as a worldview. Mm -hmm. And then, mm. you know, I hadn't really associated it with him. Oh, right. Just think like, this is what I think, you know, I'm out here in the world making decisions. And I'm realizing speaking to you that I have a tendency to want to fight the good fight, even when it's kind of a losing battle on value. <laughs> like to say like, no, this is a great wine for the money. You guys should like this. I know you don't, but you should. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I'm realizing that that's uh, not just me that thinks that. I always knew you were that person, but I never really made the connection that you were also my teacher and that I had sort of internalized that message. Does that make sense? It, it does. And you know what? There are people that perform that role in my world, and I can't remember exactly who said what either. You know, to me, Kevin Zraeli was a very influential person. I, I really respect his pedagogical skills, his knowledge, his passion, and what he's done over the years. And I, every once in a while, I find myself quoting him without, you know, without attribution because he's informed so much of my thinking. So back to that import and distribution side, yes. when you were looking at the same business from import and distribution as you had been from restaurants, and mm -hmm. then now again you're in restaurants, what's different on that side? Like what's key in that business? Juggling the demands and 
expectations of your customers with your suppliers and motivating pretty uh, stuck-in-their-ways sales force to devote their attention to something that you believe in. It was a really interesting challenge and interesting job. And uh, so I had a number of different companies that I worked for in a number of different roles within the companies. But, you know, I started off having been a sommelier and a wine manager as the on-premise manager, meaning dealing with specifically with restaurants. And then I kind of moved on to uh, vice president of product strategies, which was a little bit broader. And then I ran an importing company within a, within a distributorship um, that was focused largely, as you said earlier, on Portugal. And that was a fascinating experience. I had a partner who was Portuguese, American, who was a phenomenal talent, great salesperson. His wine knowledge at the time wasn't that broad. So we went over to Portugal and we were tasting things. And I was saying to him, Jack, we're going to sell thousands of cases of this. This is unbelievable. For Nobody knows what Trincadera is. This is a whole story. So that was that was fascinating to me the the ability to uh, not that we discovered Portugal but you know at the time in the late 90s we signed up what I considered the murderers row you know the all-star team of Portugal uh, we had Luis Pato and Barrara we had Joao Portugal Ramos in Alentejo we had uh this port producer family-owned port producer called Barros that had 50 60-year-old Colheita ports uh, we, we had all these cool Douro properties. We had Casa de Santar up in uh, the Dow. And these were all really great properties that nobody... I, I, it was the same feeling I had when I went to the art museum, I think the Gulbenkian Museum in Lisbon. Wow. There were amazing post-impressionists and pointillists and you know all, all these schools of 19th and 20th century art that I had learned through France. There were great people in Portugal doing similar things. Now, maybe they were derivative or maybe not. I don't know. I'd never heard of them, but it was just like mind-blowing art. And these wines were just like crazy good and inexpensive, and nobody, nobody knew what they were. So... We really focused on that for about two to three years. Then the company was sold, and uh, I decided to move move to a different company. But it was it was very gratifying. But I've also heard you talk about it as kind of like it didn't quite hit the commercial no, success no, that no, you it expected. Didn't. It didn't. It didn't. Um, one thing that I've learned over the years is that quality can be at a certain level, but unless there's a coordinated marketing effort that goes beyond the efforts of one particular company, it's hard to uh, sell the wine. So we did an amazing uh, job of selling them in various markets, and particularly Portuguese ethnic market, but also you know, to retailers. They didn't sell it all on premise. I remember I, I, I sold some into the Four Seasons at one point in Boston, and six months later, like, nobody bought these, you know. So Portugal still to this day, although much more successful than they were, but I think there's an insularity in Portugal where they don't quite understand what's going on. The, the, the charm is also the, the flaw. So they don't quite understand what's going on in the rest of the world. They don't understand why somebody pays $50 for a bottle of this in, in Lisbon. Um, they shouldn't do the same in Boston or New York. 
but you know, I chalked it up to learning process, and uh, you know, it was it was it was hard to get accurate maps from Portugal. You know, I we we traveled through the country. We went there three times a year, and ah, the uh, the the grape variety name has been changed to Alentejano. Officially, yes, and then you go to the uh, next region north, and like, no, it hasn't. <laughs> so it was like hard to get an accurate story, or even accurate boundaries, or varietal information. It was really, really, really loose. I think they've gotten it together more since then, but it, it was it was kind of like the Wild West back then. But the wines were exciting. That that was what turned me on. But yeah, I haven't haven't been too successful over the years with Turiga Nacional or or uh, any of the varietal. I, there's there's a there's a white varietal named Rinto from the Bucellus area, and and it's grown elsewhere that I think is wonderful. And we were selling as a twenty years ago as a uh, as an alternative to Sauvignon Blanc. It's got that citrus aspect, but you know, unless there's a sommelier on the floor, nobody's ever going to order it. I guess that Portugal experience for you, I mean, you had worked in restaurants. And so you're like, well, you go to the table and you sell them on this cool, good value wine. Yes. And then when you moved into distribution and import at the beginning, you were like, yeah, we'll bring in these great value wines and then they'll make their way to the table. But you weren't that last link anymore. You were buying like a sommelier would buy, but there wasn't someone there to close the loop for you. And so then it was frustrating. It's always a challenge to take it to the next level, and it's never clear, because if it was really clear, somebody else would have done it already. <laughs> so, 04, you came back into restaurants, That's right? correct, yeah. It wasn't a planned career move. It was just something that was too good to not do. So, I was visiting restaurants. I was I was working with salespeople, and I was advising customers and doing wine dinners and things like this. And all of a sudden, the logic suddenly occurred to me, like, I can get to do all the things I've been urging other people to do. And and so that became very appealing to me. And uh, I'd, I'd been good friends with the CEO of the company. And I actually went to see him to recommend some people to replace his previous wine buyer who had left. And he said, how about you? And I was like, uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I, it was just, it wasn't something I was thinking. But we met seven times and uh, and the logic really came it came to me as to this would be a great opportunity. And that was Roger Berkowitz, right? That was Roger, yeah. He collected wine. He used to own a winery in, in uh, southern France. And uh, he actually had he used to have a radio show. And he interviewed me after I became an MW. So, you know, and I had done various uh, events for him and stuff. So, yeah, we I knew that we saw eye to eye on a lot of things, particularly pricing. That is your longest term job, right? That's right. That's right. I think it's the most successful restaurant group in Boston, right? If I were to think of a restaurant group. I think so. Yeah. I, I think mean, you know, in terms of revenue. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. One of the things that's really surprised me about Legal Seafoods is how it's really diversified the brand. And that, that sounds kind of like uh, marketing speak. So let me explain what I mean. When I lived in Boston, it seemed like legal seafoods was kind of legal seafoods. Correct. And the one in the airport was a little different than the one in Park Place, maybe. But in general, menu was the same, idea was the same, style of service was the same. And now when I did the research on you, it seems like there's all these different concepts that are really different concepts under the same corporate umbrella. Correct. It makes my job much more interesting and much more difficult. 
and I have a whole staff to administer it. Yeah, when I first came on board, we had two wine lists. Now we have like 23. We have Legal Harborside, which is three restaurants in one, one of which has uh, a collection of wines that aren't available anywhere else in Boston. We have the Legal Sea Bar brand, which is very bar-forward, bar-centric. What do you think the thinking was behind developing those different concepts? Well, you know, Roger is very forward-looking, and he was the first restaurant that I know of that banned smoking, uh, banned trans fats, uh, things like that. And he's always trying to look ahead. He's very, he's always, this is meant in a positive way, he's always running scared a little bit, like, because if you rest on your laurels in the restaurant business, you're obsolete quickly. I remember that smoking thing. That was a big deal. Yeah, it was huge at the time. I got a lot of criticism for it. But the concept was that more and more people are dining at the bar. Uh, more and more people are dining casually. The days of white tablecloth and uh, appetizer, entree, and dessert are... It's, there's still room for it, but you know it's more celebratory now. We, people are looking for smaller plates. Uh, legal seafoods is seafood, but you know in some of the other concepts we can have a higher percentage of non-seafood items, whether vegetarian or or meat items, um, and just to diversify and appeal to a younger demographic. What do you look for when people uh, come to apply for a job with you? You know you've seen a lot of students come through your courses, so when you're actually hiring, when you're yeah. saying, okay, what's important to you? Uh, the smile, you know the knowledge piece we can I, I teach a course within the company it's 18 hours and uh you know i wrote a book loosely loosely modeled after the bu course but more specifically to what we do so uh you know i can teach them anything but you know unless they have that hospitality gene uh it, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter to me what they know it matters to me you know what their attitude is i just hired somebody that was my uh a great, great young woman who was my um, assistant or a course um, facilitator at BU in the History of Wine course. And she's, she's awesome. She has her own wine education business, but she's, uh, she's working for me now. But she had it all. You know, she's smart, very knowledgeable, great presentation style, and very, very outgoing. There is definitely a, you know, you have to sell it. And outgoing is a part of it for you. Yeah, it is definitely something I think, you know, in the restaurant business because it's all about hospitality. I think a good a good server, a good sommelier can make something taste better or it can make it taste worse. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm always looking for that that positivity. And, and over the years, I've had some great people work for us. But the one time it didn't work out is when I violated that rule and got somebody who was very knowledgeable and super nice but shy very shy. And that shyness uh, didn't play well. Looking back over your career, it, it almost seems like kind of a fluke that you got into wine. And then you did quite well with it. It's been good to you, I think, in many ways. Like absolutely. it's worked out for you. Yes, absolutely. But it, it seems like, you know, you could have been a dentist. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like well, it, you know, I think people end up where they belong. And Whereas it wasn't, it was a fluke in the sense that it wasn't planned. I don't think it was a fluke in tracing back the steps that led me there. 
you know, I think all that work that caused me so much uh, anguish that I didn't finish my doctorate stood me in very good stead in passing the master of wine exam. I think, I think very often we think we're driving the car, but you know, there's a lot of things that are influencing us. Some of them are unknown. I don't want to. I'm not that philosophical. I don't want to talk about fate, but this seems like it was the right thing for me to have done. And I think I was also very fortunate. Um, you know, we need luck. And the right opportunities opened up for me at the right times, and, and then we have to capitalize on that luck. Well, I have that same dream because I left college. So I have that dream where I wake up and I, mm. you know, I'm, I'm late for the test and right, everyone knows right. the answer. And so I know what that feeling's like not to have completed something. I mean, I didn't make it nearly as far as you did, but I know exactly what that's like. So that's really interesting to me that not finishing the PhD and kind of a, a sense of guilt over that led you to be uh, more focused on the wine side in terms mm-hmm. of the academic side of it, in mm-hmm. terms of the credential. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I don't know about guilt, but it was disappointment in myself. So the number one question I'm asked by consumers, students in the class is, how do I get into this? And I think people have illusions that it's all glamour, it's all going to dinners and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the first thing I, I tell them is you have, to have a, you have to have a super passion for it because it's not that lucrative compared to other things somebody as intelligent as you could be doing. And secondly, there is no one path. You just have to immerse yourself in it. When you, when you take that right turn, you're going to see a few doors that you don't see now, and you're going to go through one of those doors, and they're going to open up another few vistas that you didn't see when you're at the first crossroads. And you just have to continue to immerse yourself and have faith in yourself that you'll figure out a way to do this. And a number of people have you know followed that and... and you know, they're, they're happy. They're doing it. But I think it's when we look for the quick fix, sometimes that we get very frustrated uh, with, with this business, with this field. You know, I, I tell everyone it's a glamour, so to speak, glamour field. A lot of people want to go into it. When a lot of people want to go into something and there are only so many opportunities, you know, you have to have something to distinguish yourself. What's next for you? I mean, what do you still want to achieve? Uh, I'd like to see us grow our sales. That keeps me up at night because when I first came to Legal Seafoods for the first 11 years, every year we sold more in the last four years. It's been very sideways. So I know there are, there are larger trends, but uh, you know, I'm always, always trying to figure out how to sell more wine. And I hate to take it in the context of selling. I, I don't talk to our staff about upselling. I don't like the idea. We're not on a used car lot. But still, I know that the more knowledgeable they are and the more time they take to learn this, the better sales will be. Kind of a testimony to how kind of humble you are as a person that you would say that because you've actually trained thousands of people at Legal Seafoods, but you kind of feel like it's an unfinished job. Like I think other people would be stressing over years, thousands of people have been trained by me, and I, you know, and you're kind of doing the opposite, saying like, "Well, there's still a lot of work to do in terms of training people." It's like I, I don't know, a lot of people have spent more time training. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think it kind of it's the speaker of the tale coming through as much as the tale. Thank you. Uh, one thing that's nice about having trained so many people is it's hard for me to go out in Boston and order a glass of wine without. And pay for it because most right. most of the people that are running the programs have been through the course. 
Sandy Block went through a door and found three other doors behind it, all of which worked out well for him. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to uh, reconnect. Sandy Block passed away in November of 2021. May he rest in peace. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. There's been a lot of fluctuation in the lobster price, some pricing of lobster. Absolutely. We, we had to go, we hate to do this, but we had to go to market price on the lobster because we got, I think there was a period of about two weeks where we got caught short and it was hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, when we had a price on the menu and we had to honor it, but. Maybe you should do that for the wines. You know I mean? <laughs> market price. Let's <laughs> yeah. make a deal. Ask me. I'll, I'll make it a deal. One of the trends that I see in wine that I really don't like in restaurants is I go into certain restaurants and it says Barolo, $49. Uh, which Barolo is this? And they kind of look at you like, uh, it was like, how dare you ask? Why do you need to know which one it is? And it, I find it very off-putting. I don't know if you've seen that, but... Uh, yeah, there's a burger place down the street for me that's a famous burger place. Some uh -huh. people go down a lot, and they, their menu's like that. <laughs> I actually took a picture of it once because I was like, this, this is hilarious. Which of any of these is this? <laughs> Ooh, look, they have Barbera. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And then you kind of wonder if you like if you spin the wheel, if you're just going to, you know, oh, my God, it's Giacomo <laughs> Conterno Barbera by the glass for 71 $12. vintage. Yeah, 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 you know. They're just like, oh, you know, it's the only one we had down there, so... <laughs>